Welcome to Leveling Up, where you'll learn from leading experts in talent development and explore how leaders in some of the world's most successful businesses approach employee development, manager training, and more. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also listen on our website at levelingup.co. Today's episode is with Seda Howard. In 2014, Seda joined IVP, a late-stage venture capital firm based on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. Today, she's responsible for advising the firm's portfolio companies on human capital issues, including executive search strategy, leadership, and talent development. Prior to joining IVP, Seda served as VP of Human Resources and Organizational Development for LeapFrog Enterprises. Her experience is both wide and deep. She has an incredibly impressive background, and she uses this experience to guide CEOs and leadership teams in her portfolio companies. Seda agreed to sit down with me, and we dove into best practices for continuing to develop a strong culture as you grow your organization, whether you're the manager, a senior director, or the CEO. In this episode, Seda also talks about how she helps senior leaders find and recruit executives as they grow from medium-sized organizations to companies that are ready to IPO. This is a great episode for anyone who is looking to refine their executive skills as they continue to expand on their career. Hey, Seda, thanks for being here. Do you want to kick us off by walking us through your experience? Great. Happy to join you. So in my current role at IVP, I lead what we call talent and venture services, which means that I help our portfolio companies with everything related to talent. We are a late stage venture services firm, mainly or primarily investing in technology companies. And so those talent issues are everything from we need a new CFO because we're getting ready to go public and we need somebody with public company experience. Our sales leader has been great from zero to 50, but now we're trying to go from 50 million above. We need to think about getting a new sales leader. Uh, So from a recruiting, replacement, upgrading talent to things like employee management programs, to things like compensation, equity, all things related to people. And then the other side of my role is what we call services, and that's non-people related. So recommendations for outside counsel, recommendations for PR firms, um, all the needs that fast-growing technology companies have. I try to understand who some of those partners are in the ecosystem and then introduce them to our portfolio companies. Prior to IVP, I was in executive search at Russell Reynolds Associates for about four years where I led executive searches for all sorts of technology roles, companies, clients included Google, Facebook, et cetera, roles, everything from Uh, chief technology officer, marketing, sales, CEO, general managers, et cetera. Um, And then I left Russell Reynolds actually to go work for LeapFrog Enterprises, one of their clients. Uh, At LeapFrog, I started initially rebuilding the recruiting department and then was promoted and headed HR globally for the organization. So my role here at IVP is really an opportunity to leverage both of those experiences. When I sit with our portfolio companies, I can talk about what it's like to be internal with a company and having to evaluate a new uh, talent acquisition system or to have to think about downsizing or to have to think about any of the challenges that you do as an internal person. But I can also talk a little bit about how the sausage is made on the executive search side and things for us to think about how they can be better at getting searches off the ground and searches completed successfully. Your portfolio companies are incredibly lucky to have you to come in and partner with them. Are these often the first executive searches these senior leaders have have had to execute? Or do you often have CEOs who have plenty of experience coming from larger enterprises? How much of your time is coaching versus teaching? 
Exactly. It's a little bit of both. So because we primarily invest at the later stage, a lot of the companies that we talk to, they may not have actually used an executive search consultant, but they've gone through some sort of executive changes at the senior leadership level. I'd say that's probably 40 to 50% of them have done that at some point. Uh, and then the other side, when we go early, it's usually because we know a space really well, we know a team really well, or really just love the product, the, the service, whatever it may be, and are willing to take a bet on it. And in those cases, yes, it's definitely a hands-on, talk them through what does it look like, writing that first C-level job description, what does that mean? How do you get outside of just family friends, right? Uh, how do you not, because for a lot of startups, the initial hiring, especially for senior folks, it's people that they know well, people that are in their network, people that are connected to people in their network. It's when you're trying to go three, four degrees out where you don't know somebody and you don't have somebody vouching for them as well. That's when a lot of CEO founders get really nervous because this is their baby. This has been their baby. And, you know, it's just like hiring a babysitter for an actual child. If you're going to bring somebody in, it'd be nice if you had so-and-so that could refer them and so-and-so that could recommend them. But to just go out and find somebody at random, you're nervous at first. So talking them through what that looks like, what that means, how they can improve their chances of actually making a strong hire that they're not going to have to replace relatively quickly. That's a little bit of what I do as well. How did you end up on this trajectory? Did you always know you wanted to get into talent development? So I laugh because I was talking with uh, an executive search consultant yesterday, and we were both joking that nobody grows up saying, I want to be an executive search. Yeah. Um, I've met one person in all of my career that actually said that, and that's because their best friend's mom was an executive search consultant. So as a kid, they actually knew about the business, grew up you know, adjacent to it. But outside of that, nobody grows up saying that. Um, it's interesting. I got to Russell Reynolds uh, because when I was an undergrad at Stanford, I worked with a woman named Jana Rich, who was at the business school at Stanford, and we got to know each other. And she remembered me throughout all that time. And I don't know why, I don't know how, but for whatever reason, she always thought that I would be good in executive search and we'd kept in touch. And she tried to recruit me earlier and it didn't work out. And then when she called me in 2006, it did. But looking back, even before I joined the firm, I was always that friend in college that helped you with your resume, that helped you practice for an interview, that you sat down and thought about job stuff and what you should do. I remember my senior year at school. And, and as you mentioned, you know, my undergrad was in history. And part of the reason I, I did history was I thought I was going to law school. So it didn't matter what I majored in. And that was the path that I was on. But I spent a lot of time helping other people figure out well, what should they do and and I think part of it's because I seemed to know what I was going to do. I worked at a law firm right after school. And again, I was on a very clear path of history major, law firm, law school, et cetera. But there was always that piece of it where I worked with people on things that were career related, talent related, et cetera. Uh, needless to say, my path got derailed. I didn't end up going to law school. Working at the firm was the best thing I ever did because it quickly taught me that I did not want to be a lawyer. And then it was open and I spent a number of years in Los Angeles in the entertainment industry and loved it. But when the dot-com boom was happening in the Bay Area, that was my move into technology. But more importantly, that was sort of my first backhanded move into talent. So I moved back up to the Bay Area. I worked for a startup. I was employee number 13 at that startup. And in my role as a client services manager, I ended up hiring a bunch of other client services people after me. And when I looked back, I'd realized that I hired probably 60 people for that organization. And I was hiring them 
like in my role to actually do the job, but I was also sort of the de facto HR person without realizing it. And it kind of brought together everything that I'd done uh, unofficially, everything that I'd done in my off time into the professional world, which is why later on when I was recruited to Russell Reynolds, it made sense that that's the path that frankly, I probably should have been on the whole time, but didn't really know it. For many people, the process of looking for a new position, especially once they get to that executive level, is intimidating, mysterious. It seems like for you, it it kind of flowed naturally that you sort of knew exactly how to progress through this, even at an early age. Yeah. Yeah, It's funny. I think in hindsight, 2020, it looks like it's sort of been easy and, and seamless and flows for me, but that's the benefit of looking backwards. I think in the moment it wasn't. In terms of that, that next executive job or even that first executive job, one of the things that I was very clear about when I made the move to Russell Reynolds was I wanted to stop thinking of my career in terms of checkers and I wanted to start playing chess. And by that, I mean, I wanted to start being more strategic about the positions that I took, why I took them and when I took them. I, at an earlier points in my career, I took a job because I liked the job and that was really it. I took a job, I liked the job, I liked the people that was enough. It wasn't until later that I really started to think more about the role itself in the organization and what I was going to be learning. What skills was I going to pick up? What, what else was I going to add to my toolkit? And who would I be adding that with, right? I'm a big believer that it's, it's great to learn from your colleagues. It's great to learn from your managers. It's great to learn from the people that you manage. And so you've got to be thoughtful about what that environment looks like. I've talked to many uh, executives who are looking at roles at organizations that they're not a good fit with at all, but they feel like but the job itself would be so great. And what I try to remind them is how great is the job? How great is the thing that you're doing? If you really dislike all the people that you're working with, right? How much are you going to thrive as an individual? How much are you going to thrive in that role? And, And how much are you going to help the company thrive, right? So that's one of the things I encourage people to think about as they're thinking about their longer term career is look at all of the different elements and be strategic about it. Yes, there might be times where you take something from a job perspective, let's say from a leveling perspective, you've been a VP of marketing and you're a darn good VP of marketing, but the sector that you're in is not the sector that you want to be in, right? You'd say you've been in consumer hardware and you really want to get into consumer software. You really want to get into tech or enterprise or something of that nature. There might be times it's worth it to come down on the job itself. Take a senior director role because it's in a company that's growing really quickly and you're going to have opportunities to advance there. It's with a group of people that you really believe in, that are smart, that you've got the right DNA, cultural fit with, and it's in the sector that you want to be in. I think sometimes people don't do that. They're looking at one aspect instead of all of them. What are some of the skills that you were able to put into your toolkit that um, you're really lucky now looking back at to have taken the time to prioritize that? That's a great question. I, you know, for me, I think recognizing somewhere in the middle of my career that I'm an introvert and I've become even more of an introvert as I've gotten older, that sales skill. So one of the things that really scared me about going to Russell Reynolds wasn't the execution of the search itself. I felt fairly confident. They've got a great training program. They do a great job of recruiting people out of industry and then teaching them search itself. But there's an element of sales that's involved with that. And that's just not me naturally. And I I thought at the time, it'd be great to work on that. Doesn't mean I'm ever going to be the number one, you know, salesperson out there or anything of that nature. 
but to not be scared of that and to feel like, okay, that's a little bit of something that I've added to my, um, to my core, to my wheelhouse, that, that felt pretty good. As an introvert, it probably didn't feel natural to pick up that skill. So sales is something that comes up a lot with our, our members, especially because whether you're a recruiter or you're uh, a sales account manager or you're a senior sales executive, it takes a lot of practice to get there. And it takes a lot of pulling yourself out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Is that a theme in your career that you've been able to pull yourself out of your comfort zone and jump into something new? It is. You know, it's funny. The theme in my career is, especially early on, being able to jump into different industries without knowing anything about it and then being able to quickly learn about it, get good at it, right? I, I love the fact that I joke with a lot of friends that I've had 8 million jobs because it feels like that sometimes, but I love the fact that I've been in lots of really different industries because that helped me immensely when I started in executive search because there, every time you pick up a new search, you're learning in about entirely new business sometimes an entirely new industry, and you've got to do that quickly. Um, quick little side story. When I started at Russell Reynolds, it, they have you go through what's called the new associate program, NAP. And I met a gentleman there who was in our insurance practice out of the Boston office. And we just hit it off. He was a nice guy. When I got back to, to my office in San Francisco, you know, you slowly get ramped up on searches. He called me out of the blue and said, hey, I've just picked up a couple of searches. I could use some help. Can you help me? I know nothing about insurance. I know nothing about the insurance world, but I did. And the fact that I felt comfortable saying, okay, sure, let's see what I can learn here. You ask smart questions, you listen to smart answers, you apply, you adapt. Um, so I, I feel like that piece of it has made it really easy for me to jump into things that probably scare me a little bit more than I normally would, because I always feel like with pretty much anything, if it's new, if it's different, you've got to start by asking smart questions and you've got to listen to smart answers. It's that growth mindset, right? That idea yeah. that just jump in and figure it out. How does that shape as you're helping companies think through uh, who they're going to bring on as their senior leaders? How does that shape your recruitment style for executives? So it's interesting because some, and it differs company to company. It differs, differs CEO to CEO, founder, et cetera. You know, some of the companies that I work with are focused on getting people that come with relevant experience, right? Their, their whole um, ethos. You know, I've, I've got a, a friend, a fellow executive recruiter that talks about DNA and feels like it stops saying culture fit and start talking about DNA and DNA match. And I think that works really well. But for some organizations, just because of the nature of who is leading it, who has led it in the past, they say it's about pre- previous experience. They want somebody to come in and do what they did before and replicate it over again. I'd say with innovative, fast-growing tech companies, less so. And it's about intellectual curiosity. It's about the ability to have exactly what you said, the growth mindset. I think that the companies that are really thriving, that are doing well, as they're recruit- recruiting in new senior executives and they're looking at people, sure, you want somebody to come with some amount of relevant experience to your space or to the function area functional area that you're recruiting them for, but you also want somebody that isn't going to come in with the same playbook of, I did it at this company and this company and this company, and I come do it at your company. That's the case. We can just go see what you did and replicate that. That's going to come in with a, I want to learn about what you're doing here. I want to take some time to ingest that. And then to come up with whatever personalized plan makes sense for this organization, right? And to be able to grow and change and adapt with that plan over time. No company remains the same, right? So the challenges that you were fighting 
two years ago when you were a $20 million company are not the same challenges you're fighting two years from now when you're hopefully $100 million. Can we unpack that a little bit? How do you adjust for that as you're scaling your team? And you know, you need somebody who can come in and function at both sizes, right? Take it from small to big or medium sized to big. Exactly. And that is definitely a challenge. I've met a number of executives, really good people, people that are great at their job, but they're stuck at a level. And that's the level they know. And they haven't been able to grow themselves out of that for whatever reason. Some of it is a mindset. So the, the tactics, and I'm just talking pure practical tactics, but the tactics that you use early are kind of guerrilla style. It's how can I get that one deal here? How can I get that one close here? How can we get eyeballs for this product? How can we get the buzz, the word, whatever it may be? And, and that's great. People that are really creative, people that are really, um, that are looking at blank space, white space, and seeing things in there and able to pull that out. That's, that's, those are tremendous skills and the people that can do that, I'm always in awe of them. And then once you've done that successfully, how do you keep doing that with some system, some processes, some procedures around it, and then up level, right? So the people that I've seen that haven't been able to go from that level of the early stage, the guerrilla tactics, the, the, the getting that first win to the next, it's because they can't think about, okay, that worked when we were... 10, 15 million. Now it's not about still replicating that because that's not going to work. It's about thinking what else, what goes on top, right? How do we systematize that? And then how do we keep going with the other thing? I think sometimes success can breed inertia and people stay in that same space. And that's the time where you actually need to shake things up even more. That's the time where you need to stop and really ask yourself what else aren't we doing? What else are we looking at? Sometimes with that early success, people get comfortable and comfortable is where you're going to get in trouble. These are larger companies that have to shake it up and and come in and change this. As you're saying, how do they do that from an internal operational standpoint? You have all these team members who are working in a certain way because that's how things have been done over say the past year. How have you seen companies effectively shake things up without, you know, destroying culture or destroying what's morale? And that, that's the challenge that you mentioned right there. And talking to some of our HR leaders, especially those that are going through that hyper growth stage and that are moving into those next levels, the, the, one of the big challenges I always hear is that you start to develop that us-them mentality. Those people that joined early and that took the risk and that really believed in the mission and were there. But, and then these people that are coming later, right? You know, I see it, those, those first hundred employees, those are true believers. Those are people that are drinking the Kool-Aid, that are bought in. Employee number 300, the risk is gone. Employee number 300 is jumping on the bandwagon. And employee number 300 has some valuable ideas. You know, one of the things that I encourage our companies to do is to really be clear from a communication standpoint all the way through that this is the evolution of the company. There will be some people who will be there in the first 100 that should absolutely be there as you get to three, four, and five because they can shift and grow with it. Their role has changed. Their mindset has changed. They aren't living in the good old days. And then there are some people whose journey with that company needs to come to an end sooner rather than later, right? That they're not going to be there. They're not going to say, oh, well, five years ago, because they aren't bought into the fact a company is a living, breathing organization, right? It's going to keep growing. It's going to keep changing no matter what. Every week, every quarter, every year, something different is happening good or bad, right? It'll rise, it'll, it'll fall. And you need people at every stage that are going to adapt to that. 
So it's communication, clear communication from the top, from the beginning. It's the, the leaders, not just the CEO, but the entire leadership executive team recognizing it's their job to communicate with the organization and to make sure that everybody, as they join, whether they joined as employee number 10 or employee number 310, knows that that's exactly what it is and their role and their time with it. That process of setting expectations with everybody right up front and saying, you know, our goal is to be a massive company or to serve our members at the best way possible and expand is, is a theme that we see even in the smallest companies, but definitely in larger companies. You come in and you think it's going to be a certain way when things shift. Often individual contributors and mid-level managers are the last to, to learn about it. And so it can feel a little bit like a slide swipe. Digging into that theme of you have these individuals who can adapt over time with the organization. How, as a leader, can you spot those individuals early on and and know how to recruit them? Like, what are the characteristics of somebody, any sort of signals that they give that can help you hire those right people? Yeah. Well, so one of the biggest things that I look for is that person that's asking for more, that proactive person. It goes back to that curiosity piece. I love it when I'm working with team members and they say, why? Right? Like, I want to, like, why did we do that? I want to, and that why is in questioning, oh, that was a dumb decision. But why is in really wanting to understand things, why we do things, the, the thought process behind it, and that are thinking ahead. You know, one of the things that I always tell people, especially middle managers, when they're looking at, well, how do I get promoted? How do I get to that next level? It's, It's starting, and it sounds trite, but it's true. It's starting to think like your boss and then starting to think about how do you make your boss's life easier? Every day, every movement, every action should be around, how can I get that information to them before they ask me for that information? How can I think about what they go through on a day-to-day basis and what my little piece of that is and make it better? So if you know that your boss has an executive team meeting every Tuesday at 8, Make sure you send them information on Monday so they have time to go through it, get up to speed, et cetera. Don't send it to them Monday night at 10 o'clock. Don't send it to them Tuesday morning at 7.30, right? It's those little things. Knowing that, you know, there is a, a weekly report that gets sent out and that person's out of town and figure out a way to get to, it's, it's all of those little things where it comes to being proactive and understanding that to some extent, your job is making their life easier. And the more you do that, the more that you're proactive the more they think, oh, wow, this person really gets it. They're ready for more. I can give them more. It's identifying opportunities. I love it when people raise their hand and say, hey, I noticed that so-and-so was really swamped, or I noticed that, you know, this wasn't getting done. I'd love to step in and help if you need help. I I rarely think that there is a manager out there that's going to say, no, no, you can't, right? It's the kind of thing that I don't even want to just say get you noticed, but it gets people thinking about you in a different way. The perception changes. I think people that are doing exactly what's asked of them and just that, that that's great. Fine. You'll get a good performance review. You'll get your standard bonus. You'll get your whatever. But it's hard for somebody to think, oh, that's a candidate ready for promotion when that's the level at which you're operating. When you look at executives and help them get from where they are today to maybe another larger company, if that's what they're hoping to achieve. How does that differ, right? What are you looking for in a senior executive? If they're a senior vice president of marketing or senior vice president of finance, what are you looking for when you bring them to a bigger organization? 
So from a bigger to a smaller organization, at some point, the, the size doesn't really matter, right? It's the ability to talk about uh, scale and to deal with scale, right? So when you're talking large marketing budgets, spending 10 million, spending 50 million, maybe you're just 5Xing everything, right? So we were going to spend this much on TV, this much on print, this much on radio, just times five and you call it a day. It, it's, it's a little bit about that, but it's more what I need that executive to demonstrate is that they've got some strategic thought around what is different about spending $50 million? What is the return that they're trying to get on those dollars? I'm just using the marketing example that makes them ready to play at that level versus this level, right? Do they understand, again, from a scale perspective, how those resources are used differently, deployed differently, and, and not just financial resources, but people resources, right? You go from managing a team of three managing a team of 30. Are you as a senior leader ready to do that? And what does that look like? So a team of three, they may all three directly report to you. A team of 30, what are the levels within? How do you organize it? What thought have you given to my team of 30 needs? How many VPs needs? How many directors needs? How many individual contributors? Should I break it up by function within my function? Should I break it up by channels that we sell through? Should I break it up by geography and why, right? What goes into that thought on how I would structure it and how it would go? These are things that at a senior level, executives need to have thought about, have a strong opinion around, have some sound thinking behind those strong opinions and be able to communicate those things clearly. That's what a CEO, that's what a board is looking for at, at any level, whether it's you know a $500 million company or a $5 million company but that you thought about appropriate to the scale and size of the organization, how you're going to deploy the people resources, how you're going to deploy the financial resources. Is that the same thought as you move them into the C-suite? Like what you're looking for when you bring them into a C-suite? Absolutely. So a lot of that, and then I would layer on top of that from the C-suite perspective, thinking across the organization. So for, for any company that you can point to, there are the, the customer goals, whether the customers are enterprise or consumer. There are the, the organizational goals. There are the revenue goals, the top line, the bottom line, et cetera. As a C-level executive, you're worried about thinking about your particular functional area. I'm the CFO. What does my team look like? What are we doing from an auditing standpoint? What are we doing closing the books, et cetera? A good C-level executive is also thinking about how that relates to the other C-level functions. So I'm a CFO thinking about everything that is in my, my scope of responsibility, but also how does it relate to my chief revenue officer who has some very aggressive revenue targets to hit, but I'm putting some constraints on them when it comes to discounts and sales, right? And I'm talking to my chief marketing officer who has some very aggressive marketing numbers to hit to support that aggressive revenue number, but I'm putting some constraints on the marketing budget and the timing that they can use those dollars, et cetera. At the C-level, it's about not only understanding your world, but how your world impacts those other worlds, and frankly, being willing to do that. You know, some of the, the biggest problems we've seen inside companies is that the C-whatever isn't getting along with the other C-whatever, and the big goals that need to happen for the organization aren't happening because, frankly, two individuals can't sit down and talk about it and get beyond themselves to what's happening at the organizational level. Those are the things that we look for when we're having those conversations. When a board is interviewing a potential CEO, they want to know how she or he is going to do with 
frankly, wrangling the cats, right? And getting everybody together. When a CEO is interviewing potential head of sales, chief technology officer, chief marketing officer, it's not just their expertise in their particular functional area and their ability to do that job. It's, again, their ability to work across the other areas for the company as a whole. It's interesting to get that perspective of what is your C-suite team? What are they thinking about right now? What is keeping them awake at night? And how does that trickle down to every layer in, in the company, whether that's your SVPs, BP, your director, et cetera, and it just goes all the way down. So thanks for, for unpacking that for me. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I tend to think of it, it should be just like goals, right? The company has some master goals at the top and those should absolutely trickle down to that individual marketing analyst, that individual financial analyst, that individual sales rep that's got their quota in their bag. And everybody should be focused on that piece of it, their piece of it, how it relates to others so that it goes back all the way to the top. That requires a heavy amount of internal communication. What have you seen be a successful approach to internal communication? That's a great question. And unfortunately, I probably have too many examples of approaches that don't work and not a ton of examples that do work. You know, I think the the big thing about communication is being clear, being consistent, being upfront and being timely, right? I think the, the timely piece of it, when you know that something has shifted in your business and your people are already talking about it, you are losing days, weeks, months of productivity, of focused work, of good work, because you're not just coming out and saying, yeah, team, we missed our third quarter numbers and here's what that means. We don't have all the answers for you right now, but it means we're going to have to make some changes in the organization. Saying that up front and getting people on the same page, most importantly, being clear about when you're going to have answers, that is what's going to make a difference from everybody sitting around worrying about, oh, am I going to get fired? What are we doing? Someone's going to get fired. When you've got the information, be as clear, be as upfront, be as timely, be as consistent in terms of the, the cadence with which you do it as you can. And that will help some of that from a cultural standpoint and the goals. As a company scales and they're they're trying to scale their culture as well, we're noticing that bureaucracy starts to come in. There's all these rules that get put into place. And, and to your point earlier, some people are going to leave because that's just not what they signed up for. But for the people who want to stick around and want to keep that essence of a, of a strong culture, how can you ensure that the people you bring on are going to help keep the best parts of the culture and make it even better? Make it even better. So I think part of it is, and this is harder to do, but if you've got agreement from the beginning that the things that you're putting into place from a bureaucracy standpoint are because like, there's an actual reason behind it, right? Because it's going to help the organization work better, because it's going to eliminate a particular problem. Forget which which CEO it was. There's a CEO that that said they only create a rule in the organization to address a problem. If there's not a problem, you don't create a new rule. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at it, right? Sometimes when chaos starts to happen, especially in hypergrowth, when companies are going quickly, people are creating rules just to kind of create them, right? And so you've got to be thoughtful about what layers, what bureaucracy are we putting in and why? Does it address a particular pain point? Does it address a pain point we already see or a potential one in the future, or are we just adding bureaucracy for the sake of adding it? Um, And what I would do is encourage people, and I've said this to friends who have been early employees at startups that feel like, oh, it used to be this, it used to be that, to be clear with themselves on what is it that they really miss? Is it that they miss the crazy heyday of, oh, we got to get this deck out right now. We've got this company that's going to sign up and it's going to be a million dollars. 
Is that it? Or do they miss the ability to walk into the CEO's office? They miss knowing exactly what was going on. If it's other things like that, take the time to stop and think, what are things that we can be suggesting? What are ideas that we can give the company to bring back some of that or to maintain and preserve some of that while still recognizing that the business has to grow, the business has to mature and evolve? It can't be that mad scramble all the time. Do you have any thoughts on how rising leaders can, like the rising CEOs, CEO of a smaller, medium-sized company, somebody who maybe comes in right as you're, you're investing in them, how do you coach them on developing into a stronger C-level leader in the event that they might be able to stick around and keep leading the company? When thinking about making a founder CEO change, it happens usually because the, the founder hasn't been able to demonstrate that they are someone that's capable of moving through those various levels. And again, we recognize that with the different functional areas that that happens, right? And then we make that change. But when it's the founder, it's, it's even trickier. So if I were coaching a founder who was at, and the board investors, they recognize that early on. And there are usually opportunities to turn it around if that individual is willing to take it. Um, and so I, I would say, the first step is, are they willing to take it? First step is, are they willing to recognize that they have been, that, that something somewhere along the way has occurred that has made it clear that there are question marks about their ability to scale? So I'll start with that. And then with that, are they open to it? And there are lots of ways to address it. If there's a particular area of, of need, if there's a particular area that they're falling down in, you can directly try to coach that area. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's a strong technical founder CEO. And what they need to think about is what my partner looks like. Is there a COO? Is there a president? Is there a different role that I can partner with where I still maintain the strategic vision of the org because it's a technical org and you know it's really my thing? And I've got somebody else that's helping with whatever those areas of deficiencies are. I think that's, that's the real key is first recognizing that there are areas of deficiency, being willing to address them, and then trying to figure out the best way to address them. Are they things that you can actually improve and change, or are they things that you probably can't? And so it makes sense to bring in somebody that's going to augment them. Um, sometimes, and I've seen this with a couple of those, sometimes it's less about that, and it's more about, you know, one of, one of the biggest shifts that happens when someone becomes uh, a director, a VP, a C-level, a, a CEO is, I don't do myself, I review and manage. And some CEOs don't get past that, right? They still are writing the deck. They still are making the call. They still are writing the code. And, and that's fine when you're small. That's fine when you're that scrappy starting to that. When you've grown to 150 employees, and you've grown to X amount of revenue, et cetera, you cannot do that. And if you as a CEO have demonstrated an inability to let go and to let other people create and you manage, that's, that's a much tougher one. That's a tougher one to coach and manage out. It's possible, but those are the ones where you can't just get a partner, right? A, a COO or president isn't going to help that because you're probably going to be trying to do their work as well. And at some point, a founder CEO just needs to recognize in that case but that's not the job they want anyway. Exactly. Are they usually moving out of the org or just moving into another role within the org? It's great if they can move into another role in the org. It's fantastic when you get those sweet situations where there's a low enough ego, they care enough about the overall company. It's rare. 
It's rare. It's usually an L. It sounds like a complicated, I mean, I can imagine all the details that go into making that very complicated, even for the senior leaders who now have to report to this new CEO, but aren't quite sure what the relationship is with the founder who's been there forever. So Exactly. And the one thing that I would add to that is sooner rather than later, you know, I, we say this all the time about just hiring and firing in general, is that once you're clear that this individual isn't working out, whether it's a CEO, whether it's a head of marketing, whether it's the engineer, make it happen sooner rather than later. The time that you spend going back and forth and trying to ease it out and make it, it's just time that you're losing. Is it often the case that it's sort of assumed that the next step would be to bring on a new leader or is that something that gets figured out later? No, not at all. I'd say with the majority of our companies, that's not an assumption at all. The, you know, we've been lucky, knock on wood, that uh, again, the majority of the founder CEOs that we have invested in at the time of investment have been the individuals to help grow the organization and take it forward. Uh, it's, it's something that we think about, you know, when we're investing in a team. And, and by that, I mean, one of the elements that we look at, we certainly look at product. We certainly look at product market fit. We look at the overall market size and um, how big of a market opportunity is it. We look at uh, everything within the business itself. And we also think about the people in the team. Is this a strong team in place? Is this an experienced team? Is this a team that's going to need a lot of company building and team building or most of the players there? But we certainly don't go in with any sense of changing out the CEO or there's a point at which we'll have to. I think yeah. very much most of the time it's, this is probably going to be our leader. And then it's, it's, it's also part of the person that we've invested in, right? They are a good chunk of the reason that we're writing a check to that company is that founder CEO and we're excited to work with them. As you continue with that growth mindset, that's such a big part of you. How do you stay informed? Do you have any books or podcasts that you listen to regularly? So I don't listen to any podcasts. I feel like that whole world has skipped me by non-work related, but I think it sort of applies to our lives as humans. I love Brene Brown and some of the yeah. stuff she's done. I think Daring Greatly is, is a book that every human on planet Earth should read. Um, and I think some of the lessons in there apply to us, again, as humans, but also within the work world. I think a, another one that she wrote, Rising Strong, has some good applications, especially to the work world and just how we think about and treat each other. Um, and I like some of Dan Pink's stuff. I think, you know, understanding, drive, drive one of his books of what motivates us. And um, one of the things that I always talk to our companies about, especially when a CEO will say, oh, well, we'll just give her more money is, is reminding them not everybody's motivated by more money, right? Like that's not always the answer to every question or every problem out there. So I, I, yeah, I think Drive is, is a good one. Um, and some of the Malcolm Gladwell stuff I think is really interesting. Outliers, I thought, was a really interesting read uh, when thinking about how things come together and how people get to certain points. And if you think about applying that to your life and to your business, it, it brings up some interesting lessons. Are there any industries that are particularly exciting to you right now? Um, from an IVP investment standpoint or just in general? Life <laughs> in general, yeah. You know, it's funny. I was just reading an article today about um, Kevin Rose here in the tech industry has a fasting app called Zero, Z-E-R-O. And I was reading about that and what else? There's something else. I, I think this whole idea of biohacking and how we treat our bodies and well, so I'm a big fan of meditation and wellness and I use the Calm app. 
Um, and I think that that whole space and what it looks like now and what it will look like five years from now is really interesting. I think right now it feels, and I could be wrong, it feels very coastal, this idea of, of wellness and um, self-care. And it's not just working out. It's not just the physical, it's the mental, it's everything else that goes around that. I think that that's going to be even more mainstream in, in five years. And there'll be a lot of companies that are working on it in different ways. I think, you know, if you look back in the seventies, the idea that people are, are running outside, that's new and different. And what's that about? And there's a big running room. And then, you know, now when you say, Oh, I'm going to the gym or I'm doing Barry's boot camp, or I'm doing a Pilates classroom, doing soul set, like everybody's got their thing, you know, everybody's got some way. And it's not unusual at all that you have a regular routine, physical workout regimen. I think that things like a calm or a headspace and a regular meditation regimen are going to be normal. I think things like looking at how you eat and looking at what other things you do or don't put in your body. I, I find that whole area very fascinating. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? No, no. I, I think it's great. I love the stuff that you all are doing at Marlow and yeah, excited to, to help and be a part of it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Head over to levelingup.co to join our newsletter and to find past episodes. 